Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. It seems that every day we hear about another repressive anti-trans bathroom bill being proposed in the United States. The proponents of these bills try to win support for them using the specter of male sex perverts pretending to be trans women in order to gain legal access to women's restrooms and sexually assault cis women and girls inside them riffing on the long-standing association between transsexuality, perversion, and criminality. What's clear is that these bills do not have the power to actually stop any man intent on sexual violence from entering a women's restroom. And thus, their real motivation is to force trans people out of public life by denying us access to the most basic level of public accommodations. These bills are an attempt to legislate trans life out of existence. And they're happening concurrently with a rise in violence against trans people, primarily sex workers and women of color. But how did we get here? How did gender crossing becomes so strongly linked with criminality in the American subconscious. The truth is that these bathroom bills are only the latest iteration in a series of legislative attempts to extinguish trans life in North America, which date back to the mid-19th century. And, as we'll discuss in this week's episode, some of them actually began not as an attack against trans people, but as racist attacks against Asian immigrants. Now, I'm not just going to talk about laws in this episode, although I would love to because I'm obsessed with the law, but I promise you, you will get a very scandalous, sensational story right at the end if you stay with me, okay? So join us as we take a brief look at the history of anti-cross-dressing laws, the lives of Asian immigrants they were created to curtail, and one historical trans man's scandalous refusal to give in to them. The loveliness of Paris seems somehow sadly gay The glory that was Rome is of another day I've been terribly alone and forgotten in Manhattan I'm going home to my city by the bay I left my San Francisco 
If you ask queers about our history, many of us will discuss the ways that queer and trans gender expression was policed by a law that required people to wear at least three articles of clothing of the gender we were assigned at birth. There are many accounts, including firsthand accounts, of police using such a rule to raid bars, clubs, and bathhouses in order to arrest drag queens, butches, and other found-ins, often enacting brutal displays of violence in the process or taking large bribes from bar owners for them to turn a blind eye to the establishment. But when you go back looking for such a law, which seems to have affected queer and trans people from New York to San Francisco, from Los Angeles to Miami, you won't turn up any federal or state law that directly prohibited cross-dressing in public. But you will find 34 cities in 21 states that passed laws prohibiting cross-dressing between 1849 and 1900, according to sociologist Claire Sears, whose fantastic book, Arresting Dress, informs much of this episode. I really cannot recommend this book anymore. It's my favorite book on trans history. It's also very short and not super academic, so you can really sink your teeth into it if you're not, you know, crazy about history in the way that I am. As Sears points out, many of these laws prohibited people from wearing a dress not belonging to his or her sex, or wearing the apparel of the other sex. These laws were part of larger strategies to crack down on public indecency, a code word for open displays of homosexuality. Some of the laws used vaguer language, such as indecent dress or disguises, as in the case of Los Angeles and New Orleans, respectively, but these still were targeted primarily at cross-dressing. The only states that passed similar laws statewide were New York and California, which criminalized masquerading for the purposes of avoiding identification, laws which were used to criminalize trans and queer people's lives, as we touched on in the previous episode about trans civil rights pioneer Sir Lady Java, who fought California's Rule 9 in the 1960s. Many of the anti-cross-dressing municipal laws continued to be on the books until the late 20th century. But how did they get there in the first place? While some were clearly enacted to police the bodies and lives of queer and trans people, others may have initially had different targets in sight, such as suffragettes who wore pants. San Francisco presents one of the most interesting, if maybe exceptional, stories about the origins of anti-cross-dressing laws. The first colonial iteration of San Francisco was established in the late 18th century as a Spanish settlement in what was then Mexico. It was called Yerba Buena. Our story, however, picks up in the 1840s. The California Gold Rush officially began in 1848, around the same time that California became part of the United States. 
And these two events quickly transformed the Spanish colony into a boom town. Men in search of the manifest destiny-fueled dream of both Western expansion and untold riches in a largely unregulated California moved to the Wild West, as they say. These gold rush men traveled without families and thus without women. White men's willingness to intermarry with indigenous women was sharply on the decline by this point as the general white attitude towards indigenous peoples as a whole declined from a place of grudging utility to open hostility. The few white women who did come were sex workers, establishing the largely unpoliced West's reputation of vice. But before these women began arriving, the men needed entertainment. But the making of um, merriment in this period was not easy to do without plentiful women, particularly as dance partners. As a result, some men would don women's clothing and play the women parts in dances. Now, don't go jumping to conclusions. While there may have been some level of homosexual or even nascent trans activity going on behind the scenes, this was not really the point of these cross-dressing dances. These were straight men having largely non-sexual fun together in a world devoid of women. It's worth also noting that these early cross-dressing practices were also sometimes tied to racist performances of blackface um, and other forms of minstrelry. As white women entered this gold rush world, they too developed their own cross-dressing practices. Some women cross-dressed to show support for women's suffrage. Others cross-dressed in order to advertise themselves as sex workers. And still more cross-dressed and actually passed as men in order to work in the gold mines. Perhaps some of this last category might now understand themselves as trans men but the historical record is lacking in terms of how they actually understood themselves, so we can only dream. The promise of fast and easy money in the gold mines began to draw in more and more people to San Francisco. In just a handful of years, the population spiked, turning the small settlement into a fully functioning city in the blink of an eye. So many people were coming that there weren't enough rooms for them, leaving many to sleep in tents or even simply out in the open where they fell. But by the mid-1850s, things were becoming more orderly, with paved streets and a rapid expansion of buildings. San Francisco established itself as one of the most important ports in the nation, while all of this was happening, Chinese and, to a lesser extent, Japanese and Mongolian miners began entering the port, searching for their own version of the gold rush dream. Suffice it to say, 
white men did not take this development well, and in 1852 enacted a special tax on, quote, foreign minors ineligible for citizenship, meaning specifically Chinese people. White foreigners who were also flooding into the port city, such as French people and English people and Germans, were not docked with this same tax. This tax came in the form of a $3 monthly license fee, essentially eating up much of their income. But it did not deter Chinese miners who believed they could make a considerable amount in the gold rush and then return home rich. For most of them, home was Guangdong province, where many either already had wives or intended to marry girls from their hometowns. This $3 tax wasn't the end of it, though. The California legislature enacted a series of other taxes on Chinese migrants throughout the next 30 years, making it prohibitively expensive to enter the country legally. Many men quickly realized that work in the mines didn't provide enough money to pay these taxes, or the increasing debts they'd had to take on to cover the taxes for their initial travel. As they were coming to this realization, whites in San Francisco were intent on emasculating Chinese men, writing extensively in newspapers and drawing increasingly ghoulish cartoons of Chinese men as highly effeminate and almost demonic. This association with femininity somehow translated into white men believing that Chinese men would excel as household servants and domestic laborers. Remember, there still were few women to do these highly feminized aspects of labor. One example is white San Francisco resident Albert Richardson, who wrote at the time, quote, Perfect in imitation, where female labor is scarce, he proves unrivaled in nursing, cooking, washing, and ironing. Babies entrusted to him, he dandles with so much caution and tenderness that all the maternal instinct must lurk somewhere, under his long pigtail, in his yellow face, or moony eyes. This sort of racist thinking permeated white San Francisco. Chinese men became, in the racist and sexist hierarchy, seen as equal to, or perhaps lower to, the station of white women, which is to say that they were below white men. And so, many Chinese men left the mines and began working in the homes of rich and middle-class white men. For many, this may have been a hard bargain to strike as domestic labor was also viewed as women's work back home in Guangdong province at the time. Something had to give for these men. Chinese migrant men wanted to have wives and start families. Some saved money and sent it home to pay for the travel of women to the United States, where the Chinese community had begun putting down roots, establishing one of the largest and first Chinatowns in the country. But whites instantly saw this as a threat. Because what happens when women arrive? Children begin to be born. And with children, the previously transitory nature of Chinese migrant men and their cheap labor would become permanent. Labeling Chinese, along with Mexican and Chilean women as sex workers, 
the local politicians began enacting anti-prostitution laws with the intent of keeping migrant non-white women from entering the city of San Francisco. And here, finally, is where I come to the point. In order to get around these laws, many Chinese women donned male attire and played the man aboard ship as they crossed from the southern provinces of China to Hawaii and on to San Francisco. Upon arrival in San Francisco, most who were not discovered and turned back or imprisoned went on to marry Chinese men and returned to life as women. However, some did not. Like other women in the gold rush period, some continued to live in disguise as men in order to have full economic freedom. And still others may have continued to cross-dress as an expression of queer sexuality or trans identity. This apparently became such a problem that in 1870, white politicians passed an anti-prostitution law targeting Chinese, Japanese, and Mongolian women, which accused them of not having, quote, correct habits and good character, as evidenced by their tendency to, quote, play the man aboard ship. Though this would be overturned in court six years later, it was one of several laws and bylaws functioning at the time in San Francisco, largely driven by anti-Chinese sentiment and deeply connected to an anti-sex work agenda that were used to police cross-dressing. The effects of these anti-cross-dressing laws were by no means limited to Chinese communities. Their enforcement quickly shifted to all forms of cross-dressing, including those of suffragettes, sex workers, gay people, and a variety of different nascent trans identities. But before I fully jump into all of that, I do want to stop and note that this criminalizing of Chinese communities and Chinese women's bodies in particular had long-lasting effects on the Chinese community and the way they were viewed in San Francisco. Chinatown became associated with all forms of vice, gaining a reputation for brothels and opium dens that certainly was blown far out of their actual proportion. Police targeted Chinatown with raids, while adventurous young white people took guided vice tours, tours that may have included opium dens set up entirely for tourists' entertainment. Newspapers continued to run racist columns attacking Chinese morals alongside vicious cartoons that depicted Chinese people as subhuman. Chinese children were excluded from public schools in 1863, and in 1878, Chinese people were barred from owning real estate in California. This only scratches the surface of the wide-ranging negative effects Chinese exclusion and anti-cross-dressing laws had on the San Francisco Chinese community, including queer and trans Chinese people. But, as I said, the effects of these laws weren't limited to the Chinese community, and Unlike our current narrative that says that anti-cross-dressing laws primarily affected trans women and gay men, history shows us that trans men, butches, and lesbians were both equally hit 
by them and equally intent on resisting them. And to that end, I'd like to introduce you, finally, to one of my favorite historical trans men. One of my history boyfriends, if you will. Jean Bonnet was born in Paris, France in 1849 to two theater actors who quickly moved with him and his sister to San Francisco. This is the San Francisco to which the Bonnet family arrived. Shortly after their arrival, the mother of the family died. Then Jean's sister, only 16 at the time, was placed in a state asylum where she later died. The father of the clan, struggling to find work while living with a disability, moved to Oakland in search of employment. This left teenage Jean all on his own. And Jean, it must be said, seemed to like it that way. Throughout his teen years, Jean was in and out of the industrial school, which served as a juvenile detention center. Without having to worry about his parents' reactions, Jean began dressing and living as a boy. He cut his hair short and dressed in the style of other hoodlums, working-class young men at the time. In the industrial school, he managed to get into the boys' section somehow, and on his first day there, he walked up to the biggest boy he could find and beat him up just to prove that he could. Outside the industrial school, Jean made money catching frogs and selling them to French restaurants. He was notorious for his love of hard liquor and was often found in the bars along DuPont Street. Jean indulged not only in hard liquor, but also in the comforts of beautiful older women. He frequented the DuPont Street brothels as a client, befriending, and even romancing a number of sex workers in the Barbary Coast Vice District. When I read this, I just thought, Daddy. (laughs) He was arrested over 20 times in the 1870s by police for cross-dressing and occasionally for other offenses and was regularly found by police in the beds of sex workers. For these arrests, he was given stiff penalty fines and jail sentences. But Jean remained defiant. In one court transcript, he told the judge, quote, You may send me to jail as often as you please, but you can never make me wear women's clothes again. Jean's deep love of sex workers, one of the earliest examples of the long-standing tradition of trans men and butches dating sex workers, would also prove to be his undoing. He kept trying to encourage his sex worker lovers to leave their pimps, resulting in a number of fights between him and the pimps. Distraught, perhaps over his inability to save his lovers, in 1874, he overdosed on laudanum. The 19th century hallucinogen made famous by Lewis Carroll, who wrote much of Alice's adventures in Wonderland on it. One pill makes you larger, and one pill makes you small. And the ones that mother gives you don't do anything at all. Go ask Alice, 
The following year, French sex worker Blanche Bounon arrived in San Francisco with her lover Arthur Deneuve, no relation to Catherine Deneuve, and their child. Jean Bonnet took up with Blanche and tried to persuade her to leave her husband slash pimp, who was exploiting her, so that they could be together. Arthur Deneuve got his friend Ernest Girard to shoot Jean Bonnet in early 1876 and then went to visit his hospital room and put the works on him to try to force him to leave Blanche. But Jean refused. Blanche and Arthur Deneuve broke up and Deneuve took their child and returned to France. Finally, they could be together. Jean and Blanche took up together, but Ernest Girard confronted them on the street, accusing Bonnet of causing the breakup, which he had, and then he assaulted both of them and had Bonnet arrested again for cross-dressing. Girard wouldn't stop there. He was determined to avenge his friend. Jean Bonnet heard that Girard intended to throw acid in Blanche's face, and so he tried to protect her. First, he took her to a friend, Frenchman Pierre-Louise and his wife, and then to the McNamara's Hotel at the San Miguel Railway Station. In September 1876, a shotgun blast tore through the window of their hotel room, and that was the end of Jean Bonnet. While Girard was suspected, he got off with an alibi. Pierre-Louise, Jean Bonnet's friend, was accused of taking $2,000 from Arthur Deneuve to kill Blanche as an example to the other sex workers from the Barbary Coast of what happens if they try to leave. Evidently, the shotgun blast had been intended for Blanche, not Jean, after all. I like to imagine, in true Hollywood style, that Jean Bonnet jumped in front of his lover to save her life, just as the shotgun blast rang out. Either way, Blanche got out alive, and Jean did not. Pierre-Louise and his wife absconded to Montreal, where Pierre committed suicide. Blanche turned to another love, only referred to as L'Amant de Blanche, Blanche's lover, but died of throat cancer six months later. Jean Bonnet's story was discovered and historicized first in the 1970s by lesbian feminists who branded him a butch icon. But listening to his own words and actions, Jean Bonnet is, I would argue, best understood as an early trans man. Unlike lesbians of the same period, Jean Bonnet was resolute in his commitment to live as a man and spent his time and dime romancing straight women. His defiant court testimony not only sets this heart aflame, but also demonstrated that even before trans people had access to language to describe ourselves, we were refusing to be erased in the face of overwhelming opposition from the state. As we move through a period of increasing legislative attacks on trans people's lives and on the lives of immigrants, this story 
shows us the long and deep connections between these struggles. This history should motivate us to stand together against attacks on immigrants, whether documented or undocumented. Our histories are inextricably intertwined, and so too our liberation. This following program is dedicated to the city and people of San Francisco, who may not know it, but they are beautiful, and so is their city. This is a very personal song, so if the viewer cannot understand it, particularly those of you who are European residents, save up all your bread and fly Translove Airways to San Francisco, USA. Then maybe you'll understand the song. It will be worth it. If not for the sake of this song, but for the sake of your own peace of mind. Thanks for listening to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all of the sources I used. I'm indebted to the work of Claire Sears and Zagria, whose gender identity, who's who blog, remains the most useful and largest trans history resource on the internet. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash OFTV, where sometime this month you will find a brand new 15-minute patrons-only mini-episode of OFTV. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. face is filled with hate heavens above he's on a street called love when will they ever learn old cop young cop feel all right on a warm San Franciscan night the children are cool they don't raise food American dream includes Indians too.